Right, let's go before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing again. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again this time for this appointed hour of our lives to go into your word and hear from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our hope, our salvation, our righteousness, our holiness, our life, our mediator, advocate, our high priest, our sacrifice. We thank you for him. We pray, Lord, that you open our spiritual minds and ears that we may hear and give us ability, Lord, to process these things and see the significance of what Christ has done for us. We thank you again for appointing this day for Sean and Katie to come and publicly declare their testimony of Christ Jesus. We are happy for them. We are thankful to you. And we pray, Lord, that you grant me the wisdom and the words to speak the matter of Christ faithfully, clearly, and truthfully. We honor you, glorify you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what we are going to do today. Sean was thinking that it would be in Romans chapter 4. And then I said, maybe. And I'm praying that the Lord will take us away from Romans chapter 4. <laughs> just for the purpose of their baptism. And Romans chapter 4, I still have been able to preach the gospel from it. But the Lord gave me a more fitting chapter to deal with the occasion that we have on today. And that is the matter of Sean and Katie's baptism. So in many ways, this is Sean and Katie's day. <laughs> and I'm very blessed again to be here and by God's doing to be the person to do it for them. So it's a blessing for me as I'm sure it is for them. We are going to be working our message from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 39. And good morning to everyone who is just joining us. We are in the book of Acts and we are going to be working our gospel testimony and we're going to be in some other place from there. But I'm going to say that I'm not going to be rushing this message. It's a very important message, especially for the two who are being baptized because they are going to be referencing this point of their lives just as they will reference their birthdays to their marriage. And this one is testimony of a much bigger marriage, the most important marriage. And this is a message that they would want to have their children, grandchildren to hear. So I wrote it with that in mind. So I'm not just doing a message just for us to get to the pool. I want it to be something that honors the Lord. A message that they, if they listen to it, 
when they turn 90 years old, they will still be very happy of what happened today. Okay, so let's go to Acts 8, 26 to 39. And I'm going to be in the new KJV, even though I love the KJV. Um, the Queen's old language, the thee and thou, is a tongue twister. So, <laughs> verse 26 and following. X8, verse 26 and following. Look, recorded for us and said, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come down to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32, The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its sharer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. And that's the word of the Lord. For titles, we have a number of titles this morning. Number one title is, And beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And number two, which is just as important, what hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me? What stops me from being baptized? And number three, the Ethiopian eunuch and the Isaiah connection. <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch and the Isaiah connection. So this day, we'll begin this way. This day, the 9th of October, October 2022, I have another blessed privilege to speak to the matter of the most important testimony 
that will ever be spoken or be given by a child of men, the matter of their identity, their union and salvation in Christ Jesus. On the 5th of July, 2021, the Lord was pleased to join Katie to Sean Smith in marriage. And the Lord was pleased to have me mediate that heavenly mandated transaction. And if you still recall, we briefly talked on this verse from Ephesians 5 verse 31, which says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that was and is a quotation from Genesis 2 verse 24. But then Apostle Paul explained in the following verse and said, verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so Paul was saying the matter of marriage is a shadow and a picture of the church's marriage to Christ Jesus. And that means the real substance of marriage as an institution respects spiritual things, eternal things, salvation things. It speaks to the relationship that we have with God in Christ. And with that, the gospel speaks to those matters that respect our marriage to the person of Christ and to our identity and union with him. That's what marriage is preaching about. And moments before Katie got married, she was a Katie Clark. But once she got married, I pronounced her as wife to Sean and she became a Mrs. Smith. There was a change of legal identity. She took on a new identity and now whatever she transacts, she is transacting as a Smith. And I want you to hold on to that, because I will expand on it a little later. But it is necessary to set the stage for our understanding of the gospel. But to this matter of salvation and to marriage to Christ, this is what God recorded for us in the book of Acts. So go to the book of Acts, work some testimony from there, We'll go to Isaiah, then we'll tie everything together. Okay? So let's go to the book of Acts 8, beginning at verse 26. 
Luke again says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So God sent an angel to Philip and commanded him to head towards Gaza to meet a man who was on this road. God knows our ways, our going in and out. God knows that we are meeting in the basement. He knows exactly where we are. And that's very good for us to know. Because he knows when we are in the hospital, he knows when we are worried, he knows when whatever is happening to us, he knows. Verse 26, so, 27, sorry. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. So Philip arose and went because God had made an appointment for him with a man of Ethiopia, a Gentile, a non-Jew, a man who was a eunuch, a man of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And this Ethiopia was not modern-day Ethiopia. It was a much bigger Ethiopia called Nubia, whose boundaries then extended from southern Egypt to Sudan. If you go check on the map, it's going to be a much bigger place. And this man, like Eliaza of Damascus, in the time of Abraham, was in charge of all a treasury. Eliaza was Abraham's chief servant. He was in charge of all that belonged to Abraham. And that to say, all the government power rested in the hands of the queen. But the details of her power were given to this eunuch. She was over the details, the affairs that related to the queen. Okay? And this eunuch was returning home from Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. He was a proselyte, which means a convert to Judaism. But there's something interesting about that. Because according to the law, eunuchs were not supposed to come and worship God. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. That's what the law said. Eunuchs were not supposed to enter the assembly, the congregation of the Lord. So how did this one enter into the assembly of God's people? The whole idea was symbolical of what must happen to a person, to a sinner for them to approach God. And that is say, a person 
who has or had any kind of spiritual defect because of sin could not approach God. Even the smallest of sin. The smallest of sin God sees as mutilation of his image. And is that's worthy of condemnation. If you just have one single sin that disqualifies you from approaching God. So God would have been teaching here symbolically the need for worshippers to be perfect before God. As the priests and the sacrifices were required to have no blemish according to Leviticus 22 and 23. Leviticus 22 tells us the qualifications of a sacrifice. You could not bring a sacrifice that had any kind of blemish on it. And with regards to the priests, they could not have any blemish on them. They could not have one hand or finger that was longer than the other. Everything had to be as perfect, humanly perfect as possible. So God is teaching that no man can just approach him if they are lacking the one thing. Because if you remember Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, he said, you still are lacking one thing. And as long as you lack the one thing, you cannot approach him. But later, the same God will come and say this. Let's go to Isaiah 56, 1 to 5. Isaiah 56, 1 to 5. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. Let me comment a little on that. The eunuchs were not necessarily being condemned to be condemned because they were eunuchs. God was just preaching the gospel truth. And he is saying by that, we all are naturally spiritual eunuchs. We have been mutilated by sin and we are lacking something. But in the advent of Christ, in the coming of Christ, something is going to happen. And God says to these who are spiritual eunuchs, verse 5, Isaiah 56. Even to them I'll give in my house and within my halls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name 
that shall not be cut off. The everlasting name shall not be cut off as what happened to the eunuchs when they were made eunuchs. Do you see the play of words? The eunuchs were cut off, but they now have a name that cannot be cut off. That is the name of Christ. And also to say salvation cannot be lost. That's what God says. It cannot be cut off. Salvation cannot be lost. The gospel does not make us eunuchs. It actually does the very opposite. It makes us complete. In Christ we have been made complete. That's the testimony of Apostle Paul. We are complete in him. The eunuch is not complete in themselves. But in Christ we are complete. So this Ethiopian eunuch was in that fold of people who were looking forward to the coming Messiah, the very covenant and the Sabbath that pleases God. Christ Jesus is the covenant for God's people. He is the Sabbath rest for God's people. And it is he who was bringing God's salvation. And that to say the Ethiopian eunuch was elect of God. He was loved of God. He was loved of Christ. That's why the angel was sent to Philip to say, God talk to this man on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza because he belongs to me. Verse 28, going back to Acts chapter 8. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. The eunuch <laughs> was riding in a pimped out Cadillac of the time. <laughs> Just riding, he's not even responsible for what the horses that he may have had. He doesn't even care about that. Someone is doing that. He's just laid back in the back. Okay, pimped out ride. And that to say he was not by himself. He was not alone. He could not be reading and be trying to find his way home. That could not happen. A man of such great privilege had servants with him that he traveled with. So he had an entourage that also came and witnessed his baptism. Okay? Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and had him reading the prophet Isaiah. So the eunuch was reading from some scroll of the book of Isaiah. He did not have an iPad. <laughs> no iPads then, right? But this was a serious worshipper. This is what we want to get from this. He was a serious worshipper of the God of Israel. And he was still reading from the text even after the church service. And many would have been at Bob Evans by then, <laughs> having lunch, but the eunuch was still in the text of Isaiah. He had not gone to worship just to fill the time. He kept trying to learn more about this matter 
from the book of Isaiah. And of course, God was behind all this. God was behind his laboring and desire. And it is he who took him to the book of Isaiah because God intended to reveal the matter of Christ to him that very day. So God was sovereign over the doings and goings in and out of the Ethiopian eunuch as of Philip and as of you and me to this very day. God is sovereign over all of our affairs. Wherever we are, that's where God wants us to be. So Philip asked him a question and said, do you understand what you're reading? That is a very important question to ask in the matter of salvation. And it is a question, unfortunately, that is not being asked as much as should be in the church world. Yes, people can read the Bible and still not understand what God is saying. So we need to ask the same question for ourselves. Do we understand what we are reading in the matter of Christ? And what was the response of the eunuch? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And that is correct. How can I unless someone teaches me? That's what that is saying. The Holy Spirit teaches us the gospel through other God that, sorry, through other God appointed preachers whom God has given understanding. That is not saying anybody can just pick up the Bible and start teaching you. That's a recipe for disaster. It doesn't work like that. Only God ultimately is the teacher of the gospel. There's no seminary, there's no Bible college that qualifies a person to be a gospel preacher. Philip was sent by God to the eunuch. You see how serious God is with the matter of salvation. Just the one person, Philip. People say, oh, oh, they don't have church because they don't have 500 people. God had church between just Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> just the two of them. Luke says, and he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip got a chance to ride in the Cadillac of the Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> And Luke continues and says, verse 32, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And this is coming from Isaiah 53. Just how lucky for the eunuch to just be reading Isaiah 53. Well, 
There's nothing called luck in God's business. Because it is God who arranges, it is he who orders and accomplishes all things. And for a purpose, his purpose, everything that has happened and will happen has been arranged by him to accomplish his purpose. Verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? So the eunuch needs to know who was being spoken of by the prophet. The prophet himself or some other person. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. So Philip beginning at this scripture of Isaiah preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's what we do here. And that's what every preacher who has been sent of God is supposed to be doing every time they claim to be standing for God. Whatever scripture they open, they should be preaching Christ. And we know that here, that when we open any scripture, or the new, we always preach Christ from it. And some say, no, you cannot do that. Unless it actually says Jesus. <laughs> no, you can't do that unless it actually says imputation of righteousness. But once we know the gospel, you can see that God was preaching this truth in the stories, in the pictures of the many people that he raised through the Old Testament scriptures. We have done a lot of, pre of messages from Joseph and his dealings with Miss Potiphar. That Miss Potiphar ended up with the garment of Joseph, and that was her only testimony of vindication, the righteousness of Christ that was represented in the garments of Joseph. That's the only thing that she could use as testimony to prove the truth and the validity of her story. So there's no person who has any other testimony before God than one who holds or possesses the righteousness of Christ. That's the only thing that will vindicate you as righteous before God. But this is the chapter that the eunuch was reading, and that means that's going to take us to Isaiah 53. Let's find Isaiah 53, and we're going to spend much of our teaching from that chapter. Isaiah 53, and we'll begin from verse 1. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah begins with two questions. And the first question begins, deals with man's unbelief of God's truth. Who has believed our report? And the expected answer anticipates 
that only a few people will believe God's report about Christ. And the second question speaks to the need of God's revelation for anyone to know Christ Jesus and for them to come to him. He says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed the truth of the gospel? But how do they believe in whom God has not revealed? Can people just believe the gospel of their own power, of their own will, of their own reading of the scriptures? God says, no, they can't. Christ has to be revealed by God. Christ is the arm of the Lord. And he must be revealed. God has to open your understanding to believe the truth about him. It is God's doing. That's why I said, there's no seminary that can cause anybody to do that. There's no preacher who can open someone's mind for them to believe the gospel. doesn't matter how well they speak. If God does not open the understanding, they will not believe. God has to reveal. Hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, 25 to 27. Matthew says, Matthew 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Christ Jesus praising God for hiding the truth. That the Jesus of the Bible, he praised God for hiding the truth from people. And he says, it was good in the eyes of God for people to not know who Christ is. And that means the only way that one can know Christ is if God himself reveals him. And Jesus says, this revelation is made to those who are babes. And who are these babes? Are they children in diapers with a sippy cup? No, not necessarily. It is those who have nothing to bring to God. Just like a babe has nothing to bring. They are wholly dependent on the parents for everything. These are the babes. Totally dependent on God's grace for salvation. And the same Jesus would say in John 6, 44, 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. There's no one who can come to Christ. Doesn't matter what the church word is saying. Jesus himself says, no one can come unless the Father draws them. God the Father has to draw you to come to Christ, to love Christ, to receive the truth of Christ. Okay? And in that chapter of John 6, Jesus has said a lot of things. None can come to him by their own will unless they've been taught of God. God has to teach someone before they come. And Christ has to be revealed to them. God has to draw them to Christ. And in the book of John, Jesus is going to say, one has to be born of God for them to receive the truth, to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born of God. Now, Isaiah is going to speak to the humiliation of Christ or to the humility of the person of Christ because remember Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. And God humiliates himself in adding human flesh to himself and is subjected to the weaknesses of the flesh but without sin. He has to walk in Palestine in the heat of Palestine, he has to get thirsty and a whole lot more things. That's the humility of Christ. That's the humiliation of Christ, which matter Paul expounded in Philippians 2, but we won't go there because the message will end up being five hours. But this is the humiliation of Christ from Isaiah. This is what Isaiah says in verse 2. Of Isaiah 53, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So this is the state of Christ Jesus as he appeared in Palestine. He grew up as a tender plant, seemingly vulnerable. As a root out of dry ground where there's not much water seemingly. Where no one was expecting anything to grow. Especially a big plant or a big tree. A fruitful tree even. Because of the dryness of the desert. Even spiritual dryness. As such exists in the world of sinners. And that is telling us about the humility of Christ with the insinuation and expectation that when he shows up, because Isaiah is writing, looking to the coming of Christ, that when the Christ comes, he would not be a Hollywood-type Tom Cruise. To attract a large following. No form or comeliness. Christ could not be a James Bond guy. 
he would lose the audition. That's what that is saying. No form or comeliness. He could not be a James Bond. He could not be a Sean Connery. Okay? No form or comeliness or beauty that people would come and say, of course, look at him. Look at those muscles and beard. This has to be the Messiah. None of that. No beauty that we should desire him. And of course, we love beauty. But only as we see it externally, even more as it has been corrupted by hollowed. So God purposefully hid the beauty of Christ by making him unattractive. Why? So that men and women would only see his beauty through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith. That's where the beauty of Christ is seen. That is what the text is saying. And that means people need to throw away their own ideas and formulations of what Jesus may have looked like. Because Isaiah tells us what he would have looked like. Not as attractive as people have made him to be. Okay? So what was the result of that? Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Christ Jesus, despised and rejected by men. Jesus, as I said, would not have been the kind of person that people loved to look at. So much for the foolishness that we see printed on t-shirts these days that say, Oh, Jesus is my boyfriend. You would not and could not have Jesus as your boyfriend if it depended on you because all your friends will laugh at you. Laugh at you for having an ugly boyfriend. Despised and rejected by men. But he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. John says this in John 1, 10 to 13. He was in the world. And the world was mad through him. The whole world was mad through him. And the world that he mad did not know him. It's like a child who does not know their parents. They despise their parents even. The world was made by him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, or to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you hear that? That's how one becomes the child of God. They are born of God. They are not born of blood, which means of natural descent. They are born not of the will or choosing of man, but they are born by the power of God. 
So Christ Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And for these reasons, the people did not esteem him. They did not regard him as important. And yet he was the most important person to ever walk on planet Earth. Naturally, sinners will hide their faces from Christ. Hide their faces from salvation. Until and unless God causes them to behold Christ, God causes them to see Christ, open their eyes to behold his beauty. And once we see the beauty of Christ, there's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else better. Christ, the best friend of sinners. If you're a sinner, you have the best friend in Christ. That's what he was revealed to become. The best friend of the unrighteous. That's why he always hung around the sinners, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax collectors. They were thieves. <laughs> the tax collectors were very rich. They made their money from stealing from people. And then Jesus was always hanging around with them. And he couldn't trouble for it. But what they did not realize is they did not understand the mission of Jesus. Jesus came for sinners. He was the friend of sinners. Always happy in the company of sinners. Not the self-righteous. Verse 4, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So this is what this servant did in his humility. He has borne, he took our griefs. He took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He carried them on his shoulders and made them his own burden, his own problem to solve. And this was in, in the matter of the sorrows. This was in reference to the sickness of the soul, the griefs, the infirmities that Isaiah is talking about, that Christ carried for us, was in reference to the sickness of our souls as a result of sin. So when Jesus was crucified, Ignorant Israel thought his hardships of being rejected, of being stricken, of being smitten and afflicted were coming by God because of his own sins. His own sins according to them of blasphemy, of calling himself the son of God, making himself equal with God. The sin of breaking the Sabbath, they always accused him of breaking the Sabbath because he was healing people, 
making people well on the Sabbath, and eating, hanging out with sinners. They did not understand. They did not know Jesus. They did not understand their own problem, of which Jesus alone was the solution. And they did not understand the cross. They did not understand God's way of salvation, as many today. Because as Jews, they were thinking, my righteousness before God is going to come from my own obedience to the law of God. They didn't realize that's too late for them. It was too late for them to keep the law. They were already born sinners. So Christ was carrying our infirmities and sorrows. He accomplished that on the cross. He carried them so that we don't have to be carrying them ever again. We shall not carry our sorrows. Now to the reason why Jesus was smitten and afflicted by God. Yes, Pilate commanded for Jesus to be scourged, to be flogged severely with many stripes, and then be crucified. Yet it was not Pilate. Pilate could not come up with something like that. Pilate was doing God's work. Pilate and all who were involved did everything as God had ordained should happen to Jesus. Okay? That's what God purposed to be done to Christ. That humiliation of Christ was supposed to be you being humiliated. And he took on your humiliation. Okay? So these guys did not come up with it. It was not their idea. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Christ was wounded. The scars on his back. The nails that were driven through his hands and feet. The pouring of God's judgment on him was because of what? Was for our transgressions and iniquities. For is very important. It indicates aim, purpose of an action or activity. Christ Jesus wounded for our transgressions. In other words, because of our transgressions. So what are we to see? We are to see in Christ the piercing, the crashing, and the punishment, and the resulting wounds of Christ in our place. The bruising of Christ was not just a boo-boo that could just go away with some band-aid. <laughs> it was God's eternal punishment 
poured on one person in a few hours of the day. What is that saying? It is saying all our transgressions, our acts of rebellion, our iniquities, our sin, from the day that we were born, the last second that we would die, were imputed. They were charged. They were accounted to the person of Christ. And Christ assumed the responsibility, responsibility for them. And when did that happen? It happened when he came to die as God's Passover lamb. God does not impute our sins to Christ when we come to faith. It is popular teaching, but it's false. If God imputes our sin to Christ when we come to faith, then Christ Jesus must die every time a person comes to faith. Christ Jesus must die every day, pretty much. He has to die every day. So imputation happened in the one time, in the one place, at the appearing of Christ. God doesn't need to wait for you to do a particular sin for him to know about it. He knows every sin before it has even been committed. Also, if the sins of the redeemed are imputed to Christ when they come to faith, it stands to reason that when Christ died, God killed an innocent person. But God could never kill a person who is innocent. Christ died because he had been made guilty. Not of his sins, but of our sins that have been imputed to him. Okay? Here, you, here what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often. See, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, the contrast. The writer of Hebrews is making a contrast between the priesthood of the law, which had to be offered in sacrifices every year, non-stop. And comparing that to the sacrifice that Jesus did by himself. But now, once at the end of the ages, once, once, that is very important, once, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to do what? 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does that mean? It means to pay for the sins and justify the people for whom he died. When he came, he put away sin. He blotted the record of the sins of all of his people of all time. The sins of all people from Adam to the end of the ages. All their sins were put away when he appeared. One time. It was done one time. Verse 27, still in Hebrews 9. And as it is appointed for man to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. People die once as a testimony of the gospel. And so Christ also died one, once. And when he did that, he put away the sins of his people. He made it right between God and his people. By that one sacrifice of himself. And see that the emphasis on the matter of salvation and sin is Christ himself and his death and nothing else. There's nothing else that puts away sin. There's not a single thing other than the person of Christ and him dying that put away sin. This is already an accomplished reality. Okay? And that means he, Jesus, justified his people when he put away their sin. Otherwise, he did not put away their sin. If sin was imputed to Christ 2,000 years ago, then righteousness must also have been imputed to the very people that caused his death. They can't remain under the same debt of condemnation when the payment was made. What would be that debt that causes them to remain under condemnation? You see, this is the problem with the church world. They're too much absorbed in religious activities. They're not explaining and teaching what this gospel actually is. There's just a whole lot of busyness around Jesus. A lot of things going on. Church buildings and this missionary work where they don't even preach this gospel. And just collecting money and collecting more money and collecting more money. They're not explaining this. If a debt is paid, it means you don't owe it anymore. If you pay off your car not, what do you get? The title. The lien is removed. 
It now is fully in your name. The bank is not going to be sending you any more statements to say, oh, you have to pay at the end of this month. And someone will say, well, the redeemed are still condemned because of unbelief. Unbelief is sin, right? But did Christ not pay for the sin of the unbelief? <laughs> Christ did pay for all of your sins, including your unbelief. So it is not correct to say they let to remain under condemnation until they come to faith as if faith itself is what took away your sin. Christ being smitten, being afflicted by God, is what took away your sin. Faith testifies. Okay? Of sin being put away for all time by Christ who was wounded and bruised. So when we talk about Christianity, real biblical Christianity, and the matter of faith. Faith is giving testimony of the person of Christ Jesus and what he did. What did he do? He put away my sin. Is that enough? Yes. Is that simple? This is the matter of union and representation with Christ. Our sin could not be charged to Jesus unless we had a relationship with him before. We had to be united to him. Right? We had to be united to him. And Christ Jesus was standing, representing us as his people. He just was not going there and just dying and hoping that one day some person would feel sorry for him and say, okay, Jesus' death cannot go to rest. Let me just see if I can be nice to Jesus and choose him and make his work fruitful or effectual towards me. No. Yeah. So they had a, they had to be a prior relationship that we had in Christ, God's election, put us in Christ, Christ came and we died in union with him so that as he was dying, God saw us dying with him. As he resurrected, God saw us resurrecting with him. Union and representation very, very, very important because the whole matter of salvation was transacted in the one representative person. Okay? So that when he made an end to the purification of sin, we also were perfected. We were cleansed. We were made holy. We were justified in that death. There's nothing that a person can do to be holy before God. You cannot be holy by not watching a movie or not going to a particular place. That's not the holiness that God is talking about. Holiness is only being in Christ. 
being separate and having the righteousness of Christ. That is God's holiness. Okay? Verse 5, B of Isaiah 53, the chastisement for peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The chastisement, the judgment of our peace was upon him. We need to amplify on that matter of peace. Colossians 1, 19-20 tells us what that is all about. Colossians 1, 19-20. Paul says, speaking of Christ, For he pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see the language of reconciliation and peace. That's what happens where there is reconciliation. You have former parties that were warring. When they have reconciled, then there's peace. Peace between the elect and God was made through the blood of his cross. And that means that is where justification happened. They could not be any more hostilities between God and his elect once the blood was shed. And thus to say the elect were still condemned after the cross is to say the blood of Christ did not make peace when he died. Okay, And the text says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. What is that saying? It is saying he alone, Christ Jesus, whom God appointed to bear the judgment of our sin, Christ alone, would meet our reconciliation need with God. Christ would meet the peace terms that God had stipulated. Not Mohammed. Mohammed cannot do that. There's not a single person who can make peace between you and God other than Christ Jesus. Okay? And what is that saying by implication? There's no true believer, no elect person, no saved person who shall ever take the judgment of their sin on themselves. It was never for you to bear your own sin in judgment because you could not. You could not bear the weight of God's judgment on you. Okay? Christ Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to bear the weight of that judgment. Also, the terms of peace were agreed between 
Jesus and the Father. From eternity, the terms of our peace and our coming to glory were agreed between the Father and the Son from before the foundation of the world. They agreed that Christ Jesus should die in our place on the cross. And that is why right from Genesis, the testimony that you're going to see is death, 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 death. It's death all the way through. The Bible is full of death and of sin. But all that looking to the ultimate death, the death of Christ. The death of Christ is different from all the other deaths. There's only one person who could die the kind of death that Christ died because it was the death of the one who was God and man, holy and righteous, one who had life in himself. So he died a death that we could not even die for ourselves because his death removes sin. <laughs> Our death does not remove sin. So by his stripes we were healed. By his stripes we were made holy and justified. And this healing is not talking about healing from sinus infections and headaches. It was, I know Pentecostal people love to go to this. Oh, brothers, by his stripes were healed. <laughs> yes, I'll take that. Yes, Jesus did and does heal people even now, but not always. But the context of Isaiah is talking not of physical healing, but of sin. Okay? The subject of Isaiah 53 is clear from the words that Isaiah uses. He uses transgressions in verse 5. Iniquities in verse 5 and 11. Iniquity, verse 6, transgressions, verse 8, wicked, verse 9, transgressions, again, twice, verse 12, sin, verse 12. So the healing that Isaiah has in mind is salvation from sin. Okay? So the spiritual wounds of our sin have been healed by Christ's own shed blood. Verse 6, and we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is speaking to the human spiritual condition as God sees it. All had gone astray. When sheep are going astray, they do not look back to see if the shepherd is paying attention to them. They just went away and they get lost. Also, Sheep follow the lead. Okay? If one sheep strays, guess what? For whatever reason, the rest will follow. So to sin is to turn to our own way of salvation. Ultimately, we're seeking salvation in ourselves and things that we do. And God says, everyone has turned to his own way. And that is say, there's none righteous. 
as Paul said in Romans 3, none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God or have turned away. Together they become unprofitable. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's God speaking. He says there's not a single person. When he sees the children of men from his throne, he says there's not a single person who's righteous. <laughs> okay? But this is what God has done. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That iniquity of strain in sin had to be punished because all sin must be punished. So God laid on Christ the iniquity of us all who are the elect. God laid all our sins to the person of Christ, every one of them. I'm not repeating these things because I'm trying to extend the message. I'm repeating these things because I deal with these things with people every day. People who lack assurance of salvation because some sin happened to them. And then they begin to judge eternal matters based on what they are doing today and tomorrow. Oh, brother, I did this. I don't feel like I am saved. Salvation has nothing to do with what you're doing. Salvation has everything to do with what Christ did. So, do you want to know if you're saved or not? Hear what God is saying. <laughs> God is saying, all the iniquity of his people were laid on Christ 2,000 years ago. That's where the imputation of our sin happened. Okay? So, when our iniquity was laid on him, what happened? Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. His oppression was in being arrested and bound, according to John 18, 12 and 24. And the judgment was him being sentenced to death. Okay? And in this whole matter, Jesus did not open his mouth to defend himself. Why did Jesus not open his mouth? Because he was acknowledging your sin as his. A truly guilty person does not try to defend themselves. Christ Jesus understood that he was clearly guilty of our sins and so he opened not his mouth and that to say the imputation of our sin to him was real as if Jesus had actually committed them himself. And so was the righteousness that God gave to us. The righteousness that we possess now is so real to God that God sees it as if we performed it ourselves. 
So Jesus, the Lamb of God, quietly submitted to his death. He could have caused a big show if he wanted. He was God still. He had the power to do it. He was not overpowered by anyone. Christ was not a helpless victim. Okay? He was still God, as I said. And there are no nails strong enough in this world to hang God on a tree that he created. There are no nails. Christ was not on the tree because he was overpowered by the nails. If he wanted, he could come off those nails. He submitted to it that he may redeem his people. Okay? Verse 8. We're almost done. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. This is where Philip found the Ethiopian eunuch reading. He was cut off. The Christ was cut off in the prime of his life. The Lord Jesus was about 33 years old when he died. And he left no physical descendants. He was not married. He didn't have a wife. He did not produce any kids as you would expect of a 30-something someone. People would say, Oh, he died young. He didn't have any children. Essentially, that's what Isaiah is saying in that physical sense of things. But we know that Jesus was having spiritual children. He was giving birth to spiritual children, as Isaiah would testify. But why did this happen to him? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Okay? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So this transaction happened 2,000 years ago. If you want to know anything about how you stand before God, you have to go back to 2,000 years ago. That's the only way to have assurance of salvation. You can never be totally assured of salvation by the things that you do yourself because you're going to be stumbling. It may be good for one week, good for one month, even good for a few years, but you're going to stumble. If you look back to your life, you know the moments that you stumbled. Those were bad enough to send you to hell. So don't go back to your life. Look to the cross. Okay? Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Christ had no deceit in his mouth then and now. Jesus does not say you are saved today and then he changes his mind later on because of something that he do. That's deception. That's not how he does things. If you are saved, you are saved. 
nor deceit. He never lied to anybody. Okay? But Christ Jesus died in the company of the wicked. He was crucified in the middle with two thieves on his flanks. And the soldiers would have buried him with the two thieves. But the repentant thief died not as a wicked person, but a righteous man. Because Jesus said to him, this very day you shall be with me in paradise. So the one wicked person was the other thief who did not repent. But this is what happened to Jesus. The text says, he was buried, or, but he, his grave was made with the rich at his death. Let's go to Matthew 27 for that testimony. 57 to 60. Matthew 27, 57 to 16. Matthew says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Isaiah prophesied about this and said Jesus was to be buried with the rich. How could he be buried with the rich when Simon, when Joseph of Arimathea was not yet dead? How did Joseph of Arimathea become rich? Not through the stock market. This was not Elon Musk type richness, but eternal riches of salvation. Remember, Matthew has told us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, was a believer. He had the riches and glory of Christ. Because when Jesus gets buried in your grave, you are rich. Because he empties everything that was in that grave. And in this place, he puts his own life. So what was going to be in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea? That's going to be death. That's going to be death. And Jesus gets buried in this tomb. And he empties it of the death and condemnation that was in it. That's what makes, or that's what made Joseph of Arimathea rich. Okay? Whatever happens to Jesus happens to you if he has been buried in your grave. Yeah? 
Joseph had been buried together with Christ, in union with Christ, and he would also rise together with Christ. And all the elect, the Bible says, they died with Jesus. They were buried with him. So Jesus entered into the tombs or graves of every one of his people. He entered with them and resurrected. And when he resurrected, he also resurrected with us. And he is now seated, and the Bible says we are also seated with him in the heavenly places. So wherever Christ is, that's where you are. Here in America, we say, well, you followed the money. When you under, when you want to, when you want to understand, sorry, about the gospel, follow Jesus. Follow the trail. Follow the cross into the grave and out. And where does he go? He's seated in the heavenly places. Okay? And this is how we have been made rich towards God. By Christ entering into our own place of burial and overcoming that which had overcome us, which is death. And you see then that the Bible glowingly speaks of the resurrection as something glorious. Because God is saying that's how you overcame death and condemnation and entered into the life of God. Buried with the rich. <laughs> we are the ones who became rich because of his burial. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It pleased God to put Christ to death. Christ is he who put, sorry, God is he who put Christ to grief. But sometimes in the preaching of the gospel, too much emphasis is given Pilate and Herod and the Jews as having done things to Jesus. No, those were just instruments. The real person behind it was God himself. It is God who afflicted Jesus. It is he who bruised him. But what was the context of that bruising and grief? The text says, when you make his soul an offering for sin. So his soul was an offering for sin to make propitiation for it. To put it away, to make satisfaction for it. And what happens in the wake of Christ having successfully put away our sin? The text says, he shall see his seed. Christ could not possess his church until and unless he had been given over to death. In the book of Acts, we are told that he purchased the church with his blood. He had to come and pay the redemption price that he may possess his bride. So Christ saw his seed. He saw his offspring, every one of them. He saw his children that God gave him and he beheld them. That is what he accomplished on the cross. 
he saw the seed. He saw the church that he gave birth to. Christ was giving birth to his church. And in the wake of that, Isaiah says, he shall prolong his days. God shall prolong the days of Christ. But how do you prolong the days of a person who has died? You can't put them on a respirator. They're dead. You can't resuscitate them to life. They're dead. How do you prolong the days of one who is in the tomb? By the resurrection. (laughs) He shall prolong his days. The days of Christ were prolonged by his resurrection from the dead. And never to die any more. But why? Because the pleasure of the Lord had prospered in his hand. God's good pleasure in our salvation had prospered in the hands of Christ. Why? Because Christ had accomplished our justification. Christ had paid every jot and tittle of what we owed. And thus he made prosperous the work of the Lord. And thus Paul would say in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our offenses or transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So the resurrection of Christ was proof of a justification accomplished, a payment that was accepted by God. Okay, so these are the matters that the church is supposed to be thinking about in their conversation in respect of anybody standing before God, anybody who claims Christ. This is how we're supposed to understand these things. Verse 11, and we have one more verse and we're done. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So there's a seeing by God the Father and a seeing of Christ. God the Father would see the labor of Christ in his agony on the cross and be satisfied. Christ satisfied God's justice and wrath on behalf of his people. And that is what is called propitiation. He appeased the wrath of God and removed it. Propitiation always carries the removal of wrath. That's what Christ accomplished. And where wrath has been removed, there must needs be justification. And this is very important understanding and declaration of the gospel. I know I have already said a ton of things, but this you must understand. If there was propitiation of our sin on the cross, if there was satisfaction of a debt that we owed, satisfaction at the cross, then there was also 
our justification from the same sins. As I said before, you can't make full payment for something and still all on the very thing that you made full payment. And that's how people are preaching the gospel and saying, oh, Jesus paid for your sins, but you were still condemned until yesterday. I'm like, no, I wasn't condemned. I just was ignorant of the truth of it. But now I know the truth of it. If God saw the labor of Christ and was satisfied, then he also saw us in that labor of Christ and was satisfied. Because all this happened with Christ tending for us. And Christ Jesus was also satisfied with his own labor as a woman who was bringing about the birth of his children. He was a worker who had entered the field to plant and harvest our salvation. And he was satisfied with the labor of his hands, which is our salvation. God is not satisfied with anything that you and I will ever do in righteousness. Only the labor of Christ. So what happens where this complete satisfaction of sin? By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify the many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Okay? So God's righteous servant, the Lord Jesus, would justify the many. This was Isaiah looking, as I said, to the work of Christ on the cross and saying, this is what the death of Christ will do. It will justify his people by him bearing their iniquities. And see also, this is something very important, that it is, and it was by the knowledge of Christ that we were justified before God. No man is justified before God by their own knowledge of Christ. This is very important. Because there's a lot of teaching to that effect. You could never know Jesus enough to be justified. You could never know God enough for him to say, okay, I think Kelly knows enough about Jesus now. Let me see if I can justify her. By his own knowledge, he has justified his people. But those that God justified in Christ will be taught of God, of the truth, of how and by whom they were justified. They were justified by the person of Christ and by the death of Christ. Okay? Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And now that is speaking to the exaltation of Christ in the wake of what he accomplished. He divided the spoils with the great. And by that I believe God was speaking of Christ dispossessing the devil of his people who were laboring under his burdens and in their ignorance. The victory of Christ, like 
any who goes to war came with the spoils of war. Nobody goes to war and win it and not have some spoils of war. That's the whole idea behind this. Christ got a people for himself, for his wounds. He got something from it. He got a people. He shall divide a portion with the great. Okay? And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and met intercession for the transgressors. For the transgressors. So this is where the Ethiopian eunuch was. <laughs> coming from church. <laughs> this is what he was reading. But he was clueless of the very things that he had had. He didn't know what all this was talking about. And Philip came and preached Jesus to him from this text as I have preached. And now in the wake of that, this is what happened to in Acts 8. So we'll close in Acts 8. Acts 8 verse 36. The Enoch the now knows all this stuff. Luke says, verse 36 of Acts 8, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And that is a very important question for Sean and Katie too. What hinders them from being baptized since they have understood and believed what the prophet Isaiah was speaking of. And also for me, I have known what they have believed for a long time. <laughs> they did not begin to hear this today. I know their testimony of Christ. But then the question is very important though. What is to stop me from being baptized? Because the church world will add all kinds of conditions that one must meet before they can be baptized. And the conditions vary from church to church. They'll say, oh, you haven't attended our discipleship class. Or we need to see your tithing record. We need to see your giving record. Okay, you haven't been a faithful member of this church and all kinds of foolishness like that. Things that have nothing to do with Isaiah 53. And the eunuch is also saying, if the Christ did all these things as Isaiah prophesied, then there should not be anything standing between me and God. There should not be a single thing. Zero. Nothing should stop me from going to heaven even now if God desired my death today. What is to stop me from entering into God's presence even now? Okay? Is there anything? This is where you can tell whether people are telling the truth or not. When they begin to add conditions for you to perform, to make things right with you, and yet God has told us that everything was made right 
by God's suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Okay? Then Philip said, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and he baptized him. So the eunuch was baptized because he was a true believer of Isaiah's testimony about Christ. And on the same account, we still have our own baptism today. It is still the same testimony of Christ. He is the son of the living God and everything else that came with him. And we do practice believers' baptism as what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch, as testifying the believer's union with the death and burial of Christ. So going back to how we studied, how we opened this message. Paul said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Getting baptized means one is identifying with the person of Christ. The Christ who left his father to come and be joined to his wife. Christ is the one who left the father that he may be joined to his wife, the church, the believers, and the two became, the two became one. So a believer in baptism is saying, they too have been joined to Christ. They belong to Christ and are in union with Christ and whatever God shall ever ask of them. Christ has satisfied. When he was bruised, when he was smitten and afflicted of God. If God has anything that he requires of Sean and Katie, he cannot come to Sean and Katie. Can't do that. He will have to ask Christ Jesus because Christ is the new husband. He is the one appointed to make intercession for transgressors. Sean and Katie could never say anything that is right before God by their own power. Just the glory of God will consume them that they will not even be able to open their mouths. But, but Christ Jesus is there to make intercession for them. Okay? Verse 39, that's our last verse. Now when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no, no, no more and he went on his way rejoicing. I pray that Katie and Sean will also go their way rejoicing in that God does not count them as sinners but as righteous people because of the Christ who became sin for them, that they may become the righteousness of God in him. Katie Clark became a smith, but both Katie and Sean have one identity in Christ as the bride of Christ. Christ changed their identity eternally and their legal standing before God 
by the one offering of himself. And God ever sees them in Christ and possessing his righteousness. And that is what their baptism is testifying of. That's what they are doing today. Just testifying of something that Christ has done for them and who they are in him. God be praised for all things. Amen. We're done. Uh, we're just going to pray to close the message and then we'll proceed with the other proceedings. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for the many words that have been spoken. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for the testimony that you've given us in the gospel, the testimony that is still living through your people. And today, having Sean and Katie come and giving testimony uh, of their union and identity with Christ Jesus, not being ashamed of the gospel, we thank you for what you've done for them. We pray that you continue to grow them and mature them in the things of Christ. Bless them always in all things. And we pray for all your people who gathered around this message. May you also give them comfort in the Christ who was smitten of God. We thank you, we honor you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.